Good. I'd like to ask for your attention for some reflections. Um, I, Christina has very uh, powerfully prepared the ground yesterday, and I basically want to uh, continue on from there. Um, she has spoken about the mother of all views, Sakaya Ditti, the personality view. And um, I'd like to do a kind of a cheeky number and look at tonight why it might be attractive to have a self. Now, why would we engage in something that uh, Buddhists are so adamant doesn't exist? Something that is so difficult to trace? and to find a foundation for, um, and yet we so persistently pursue as an activity of selfing, or of um, making I, making mine, making a self. Or as Buddhist teaching calls it, ahankara and mamankara, I making and my making. Yeah. So why do we do that? The therapist in me says, you know, the human psyche is economical. It doesn't do things that don't make sense. You know, there must be a kick somewhere in there. There must be a payoff if we keep doing this. So why would we engage in the construction of a self that has to be maintained at, maintained at great expense? Much effort uh, that is ultimately always going to fail us and that uh, takes so much energy away from other uh, things we could do to make ourselves more happy. Why in the world would we engage in such an activity? Sometime in the 90s, and I'm not quite sure when, though, uh, Jack Engler declared that basically the whole Buddhist spiritual path is a path of mourning. Mourning the loss of images of self, you know, or a path of mourning for the imaginary self we have invested in at some earlier stage. And basically by practicing meditation and by uh, following the Buddha's footsteps, even if you may not think these are the Buddha's footsteps, uh, we basically are engaged in a profound uh, process of mourning for the loss of our narcissistically invested imaginary self. Which is quite an interesting way of putting it. I'm not sure whether this is what brought you here. <laughs> you know, profound bereavement work here. <laughs> but since Christina has made it clear that there are no, self, no improved selves to be gotten out of this practice, <clears throat> that we're not going to patch you up to improve samsara management or um, do some socially sustainable uh, form of practicing greed, hatred, and delusion and getting away, away with it. <laughs> I might as well give you the straight scoop. So we're basically mourning the loss of an imaginary self. It's an interesting way of putting it. Um, you understand, if you consider these three uh, characteristics of all experience, conditioned experience included, but even uh, experience that is not conditioned, uh, that basically the statement is all things you can think of and all things you can experience is impermanent. It's inconstant. And because it is impermanent and inconstant, even when you get it good, 
even if exactly it hits the spot, you're still not going to be able to keep it at that spot. You know? So even if you get it as good as it gets, it won't stay there. So even if you get it as good as it gets, you're going to suffer because you're going to lose it. You know, there's and the implication of this is also when you transport that first sign of impermanence uh, over to the, the third dimension, the dimension of the creation of an entity of self that endures through time and that remains impervious to inconstancy, um, you'll see that it doesn't work because everything changes all the things that could be a foundation for such a self also change. And a, a self that changes doesn't make sense yeah, from a Buddhist point of view. What refuge do I have in a self when it keeps changing? Yeah? Basically, I can just as well cope with impermanence rather than coping, trying to cope and patch a, an impermanent self. So logically, this is not very difficult. Logically, this makes very sound sense isn't it? That there is no such thing as a solid, trustworthy self that is going to tide me over. But psychologically, we have considerable resistances against that. No. Psychologically, we'd like to be there. No. We'd like to mean something. Psychologically, I want to be taken serious, particularly if I'm suffering. I really hate it if people tell me when I suffer and I let them know that I suffer. Oh, don't worry, you don't exist anyway. <laughs> Just let go of your funny notion of self and, you know, all the problems are solved. You're creating that suffering. I don't feel relieved when I hear that. I feel like punching their noses, basically. So, It's a very unfortunate way to... Uh, try to bring people in congruence with Buddhist teachings if they suffer and you tell them they don't exist. <laughs> it's, it's not very compassionate. That's not the moment to harp on about anatata. That's the moment to uh, take appropriate action to minimize the suffering or at least comfort them or at least not let them alone in their suffering. So, um, While it seems logical, the logical consequence of impermanence as a universal characteristic that we end up with um, uh, an experience that is process-like, that is relational rather than fixed and essential, uh, I do have, on a practical and psychological level, a lot of resistance against this insight, uh, against this statement, that me as a solid entity in the universe doesn't really exist. I feel a lot like self, to be honest. I could think of a number of ways I feel like a self. Um, for example, I feel like a self as the occupant of my body. You know? I'm basically the guy who inhabits this robot. Yeah? This, is, this, is, uh, when, uh, this world, as it happens to me, happens here. Yeah? When I move over there, you guys all look, look from over there. Yeah? My world moves along. When I move over there, my whole apparatus moves over there, and the world looks different from over there. So don't tell me I'm not in here. If I close my eyes, you're gone. <laughs> yeah. Just, I bat my eyelids and you're gone. 100 people gone. 
just bang. Yeah. So it feels really that as if I'm in here receiving the world through the sensory apparatus, which is my body. Um, there's other ways I feel like a self. I definitely feel as if I am the beneficiary of my uh, emotions, as if I'm the beneficiary, if I want to be specific in Buddhist psychology, as if I'm receiving Vedana. I receive the feeling tone. Yeah? When I receive pleasant feeling tones, it feels like I am the enjoyer of my world. Uh, when I receive painful feeling tones, I feel I'm the victim. Of, of this world. In either way, it feels pretty much like self. So Somehow it feels as if I'm getting the stuff. I'm at the receiving end of this world. If this, you know, if we, I make some concessions, if this Buddhist stuff is going to be having some bearing on reality, then, you know, there's a sensory field, there's a subjective end that receives, and there's an objective end. I don't quite know what it is, but I do seem to get stuff, yeah? So at my end of the field, things arrive, things impact, impinge. Sometimes I like that and sometimes I don't. But it feels definitely as if I'm basically at the receiving end. There is a me that receives the world through senses, a world out there. Then I have a sense that I'm basically you know, my own humble little contributions in this world that I basically express myself. Yeah? I have some, I do things, and in that doing, I'm basically expressing myself. I express some profound individual position uh, that I've arrived at after careful assemblage of previous experience, things that I've been taught, things that I've been rebelled, I've been rebelling against. I carefully arrive at some contribution to this world and I can't help feeling that this is me that I'm expressing here, that this is quite individual, quite specific and it's basically my stars that open up in the firmament. And I'm quite unique and I'm quite special in this. That's how it feels. I, I know nobody like myself. Yeah? <laughs> In fact, I, mean, I have some suspicion whether I would get on with the guy if I knew somebody <laughs> just like myself. But, you know, there's something when I'm feeling good about this, I feel actually, yes, I do have a contribution. It's quite unique and it's quite special and it's, it has a sort of intrinsic flavor of meanness. Yeah? I can't quite say where it lives or where it's coming from or what sort of which gland produces it but basically it feels that way it's you know, there's something unquestionably me like in there when i express that when i put that out into the world um there's also another sense of me where i feel i'm basically the director of this game yeah i'm 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 producing this movie yeah i'm the agent of this I'm the one who makes the choices. I'm the one who declares the action. I'm the one uh, who owns up. Yeah, I'm the. It's me where the box stops. I take responsibility for the things that I do, or engage with, or omit. So somehow that lands with me. There's a degree of agency, and I feel that agency has something to do with me. Yeah. I am the agent of my activity, particularly of my intentions. 
at least the conscious part of my intentions. And I've been struggling for many, many meditative years to become more conscious about my intentions. And at least that part I won't have so easily taken away from myself. Yeah? So I'm going to take ownership for the part of my consciously engaged intentions. Obviously, I'm, you know, I'm, if, I, if they're good and the result of these intentions kind of bears fruit, I, I like to take the credit. Yeah? I feel I succeed, yeah? I'm doing good stuff here, and I, you know, I deserve, rightly so, um, deserve reward. Yeah? Uh, if I blunder and you know, create uh, not so good results, I, um, I am willing sometimes to take the blame. Yeah? <laughs> Uh, and in, in my better moments, you know, I, I own up, yeah? and in my other moments, I <coughs> hope nobody has seen it. Yeah? <laughs> so there is a definite sense of meanness around the doing, the acting, the directing of intention, uh, uh, and possibly also, you know, credit or uh, responsibility. Then, finally, there is a sort of sense of me it has to do with being conscious of a world, you know, that things are here. There's something immediate about awareness that brings things to my mind, and it feels as if in there something is the essence of that awareness. You know. I'm the meditating subject. You know. Okay, this non-self business is fine, but there's somebody in there who knows all this and who is in charge, who knows all this non-self business. Yeah. And basically is a knowing little self, yeah. <laughs> Maybe you have one of these guys, you know. This is the guy who does your meditation, yeah. yeah. It's the guy who sees your attachment. It's the guy who uh, understands your history. It's the guy who calls your number, yeah. And basically that's you, isn't it? This is your higher self, or your knowing self, or you know. There's many names for it, and uh, Buddhist traditions have always been nervous uh, about this creature appearing again. This, <laughs> despite all declared notions of not self, despite studious exercises to puncture the notion of self, or the er how we arrive at erroneous notions of self. They, there's this guy who kind of creeps in sort of as the meditator or as the, the knower or the pure subjectivity or something like that. Yeah? It, has, it has many names in, in, uh, through the centuries. And uh, Buddhist commentaries are full of bile and spite uh, for people upholding such views. Yeah? <laughs> and do not tire uh, with a certain nervousness to lash out at anything that could make, up, make out a such a meditating self, yeah. Um, why would I do this? Why would I do this selfing? What would be a reason? What are the, the kickbacks of a, having a self? I guess it's honest to say that the, there are things we struggle with, and one of these things we, we struggle most with, I think, is uh, uncertainty. It's just not knowing. It's something we're not very good at. It puts us on edge. We find this difficult to handle. We're trying to predict the future on the basis of experience. 
we're trying to deduce, to infer, to plan, to protect, uh, to calculate. You know, if you look at human, the human mind's activity, there's so much going into preventing things, making, sifting through our experiences and preventing things that we don't want to happen and have already happened to some extent or making things happen that we would like to happen that may uh, maybe have happened to some degree but not quite satisfactory degree and we would like to have more of that happen you know? i look at the history of my my own background you know swiss switzerland uh, one third of the country is inhabitable two thirds of it are not inhabitable uh, it's mountainous it's Nature kills you for half a year if you don't protect yourself against it. You know, early on you learn you got to dig out your uh, your rivers because they otherwise going to flood. You got to make sure that your roofs are strong enough, otherwise the snow is going to kill you in winter. You make sure that you're looking well after your cattle because you need to make the cheese because to feed your kids you need to have so and so much cheese and butter. That's the stuff you can keep, yeah while the carrots are rotting away. So you need to make sure that you have enough cattle to get through a winter with a sturdy roof and your well, your rivers are dig dug out nicely, otherwise you suddenly get flooded one morning when you wake up, or you don't wake up because your house is flooded and you were in it. So you know, you have <laughs> lots of this. So basically safety, security, survival, and um, um, Growth comes from calculating, measuring, predicting, taking precaution, developing the appropriate techniques to manage this, to manage a basically hostile nature that is out there to kill you for most time of the year. Yeah. And you learn, okay, you learn, that's why you, you know, that's how civil engineering starts. Yeah? So you learn to dig tunnels and to tweak rivers and to kind of build avalanche dams and make your houses so that you get by with little heating and sturdy roofs and so forth. And you think, okay, the thing that creates safety, predictability is the thing that makes us happy. Yeah? Because it doesn't kill us. Happiness starts with things that don't kill us. Yeah? <laughs> this is sort of minimal consensus. <laughs> And you invest, you know, for a couple of centuries, you invest in that and your life gets a little serious, you know, because you're used to basically coping with things that are out there to kill you. you know? And, um, but you've invested a lot into safety, predictability, measuring, calculating, you know, boring holes into mountains, building dams, uh, digging out rivers, controlling flow of energies and so forth, you, you learn to manage. But somehow, what makes you survive doesn't make you happy. Yeah. And there's a big lesson in it, that many things that have taught us survival, or that has, have enabled our survival, uh, psychologically, don't actually make us happy. Yeah. Because survival, evolutionary quite important, is no guarantee for happiness. You can survive and be pretty miserable in the process. So many of the things we have learned to survive with, or we have produced to be better at surviving, uh, have no chance of making us happy. Look at our attentional capacities. Most of our attention is involuntary. Involuntary attention just goes to places that are the loudest. Involuntary attention is made for us to cope with sudden 
dangers that appear from nowhere, for which you have not prepared. That's where involuntary attention is really good at. Something hor horrible jumps out of the corner there, and somehow our instinct and our involuntary attention is going to try to assess in no time the best possible strategy to survive that. If nothing dangerous jumps out of the corner, involuntary attention isn't particularly useful. It kind of scans the horizons, there's nothing dangerous there. So, okay, what can we do? Is there something to enjoy? Where should I sit? What's nice? What's the softest cushion? Where's the nicest face? Uh, where am I closest to where I want to be? Yeah, either under the AC or not under the AC or close to the door because I'm a bit anxious or so at the back that he doesn't see me or at the front that he does see me, you know. <laughs> you know we... We, we kind of go, we scan, yeah, and we look for basic gratification. So involuntary attention, if it's not coping with danger, it wants to be entertained. In fact, it demands be entertained. If it doesn't get what it demands, it starts sulk, starts to sulk, yeah. It's moping a little, ah, oh, yet another bereft of entertainment, yeah, another Dhamma talk, oh God, what is he, yeah? <laughs> So we go into a, a type of attention that after not getting what it wanted, sulking a little bit, turns inward and just kind of rummages around and finds, can I think about something that is more pleasant than what's going on outside? You know? I'm so deprived here, I gotta rely on my own memories, on my own fantasies, on my own... I need to play my own games. Let's re redecorate this place, you know? <laughs> so, involuntary attention how indispensable this is for sudden dangerous things, evolutionary quite useful. In terms of happiness, involuntary attention is really a drag. It doesn't give us a good chance to actually do things that make us content, that allow the mind to become still, or that gain particularly profound insight. Yeah. For that, we need voluntary attention, which is hard won. It's an attention that doesn't grow quickly, as you know. It's an attention that needs to learn staying with a chosen task and uh, deepening relationship to that chosen task rather than running away and seeking just the biggest bang for your buck. Yeah? So that type of training is not really there for evolution. Evolution doesn't want us to be happy. Evolution is not moral. Yeah? Evolution does not think in terms of awakening. There is no program here that makes us all collectively, naturally awakened if we wait long enough. No, no. You know, we can stay stupid and survive. You know? Rabbits survive quite well. They're not very clever by my reckoning. Maybe I'm unjust, but they, they survive quite well. You know? They seem to have a lot of fun and a lot of fear and not much in between. <laughs> So, some of the things that we have developed to cope and to survive, to go back to the Swiss and evolution and so forth, are not the things that actually take us out of misery or that have a good chance to make us happy. Yeah? So why would I engage in a self? A self creates some degree of continuity. A self helps me feel a little bit protected against uncertainty. I think that's one of the prime kicks a self offers. You know, it's conveniently vague. A self, is really, if you try to define a self, it's really hard work. 
if you look at psychologists who try to define self, it's really hard work. There's admittance of um, seasoned analysts who say that, you know, p post-classical psychoanalysis produces at least seven or eight models of self in the last 40 years. Yeah? If you know, no two schools of psychology agree on, the, on what constitutes a self. So uh, if people who specialize in having selves and in fixing selves and in studying selves can't agree what it is, uh, <laughs> if you look at what people arrive at as in terms of self-statements in their psychological life, you notice people create their selves in a variety of ways. Yeah? Some people create a self by needing very little, so nobody can hurt them. Yeah? Some people create a self by needing a lot, so many people have to support them and look after them and feed them. Yeah? Yeah. So, depending on your particular strategy and temperament, and usually your early childhood situation, you <laughs> have very different self-strategies. Yeah. All of them are maintenance-intensive. Yeah. All of them take a lot of energy, and all of them are ultimately going to let you down. However, for half an hour you may fix such a self, and t that tides you over. Yeah, so you have a little self-boat, it's leaky, yeah, but you paddle <laughs> along and you know, you, I don't know what you call this in English, you know, kind bailing, of... Bailing, bailing. bailing. You're bailing water, yeah. <laughs> so your little self-boat, leaky as it may be, just, you know, keeps you afloat and if you keep bailing, you kind of, you skip her along, yeah. Half, half hour wise, yeah. Right now, I have a Dhamma teacher self, I'm sitting here on the podium and, you know, three quarters of an hour, I'm probably sitting on the loo and do something else and I have another <laughs> self, yeah? So, a kinjino the speaker and a kinjino the urinator, yeah? <laughs> Different selves, yeah? And, you know, they, they have both their uses and I kind of patch myself, I kind of bail my little leaky self-boat through the various activities of a day, yeah? It's not a really big sort of convincing and sonorous self, but it's kind of a a series of little leaky selves which get me through the day. And what does it do? You know, it doesn't give me a, f a profound sort of Catholic soul or a profound Vedic Atman, but it does give me psychological reassurance. Right now I know what I do. I'm doing the right thing right now. Yeah? Right now it's unquestionable what I'm supposed to be doing and I'm trying to do this and this is okay. I can manage this. So I get a little bit of safety, a little bit of security, a little bit of definition, a little bit of identity. And that is already enough. Most of our selfing is precisely here to make us feel safe. Deep down, we do know that this is a world that is going to darken under our senses. We know that we cannot own things. We know that. But our psyche finds it galling to live with that understanding and tries tricks to coax us into believing that things are more solid than they are, particularly that I am more solid than I am. I, so I find safety in creating a self that gives me the semblance of continuity. I believe that the guy who I put down on my pillow in the evening is the guy that I get up with in the morning. This is not the case. You know? Sometimes that guy in the morning has back pain or his mood is significantly better or, you know, he feels more fresh. But there's something in me that says, I am the continuity of my previous selves. 
Yeah, I think that, so that is one of the reasons why we in invest in being a self because it creates safety in the face of impermanence and inconstancy. Developmentally, we need that. We need people who are looking out when we're small to create stability, structure, safety. Not because it is definitely that way, but because under the illusion of it being that way, we can do some growing up. Yeah. We can learn to find, um, make experiences, find the confidence to negotiate things we don't yet know. We learn to trust things, even though they're highly untrustworthy. And um, we learn the things we need to learn when we're small. When we're bigger, we can handle a little more reality. Not all the stories end well, we know, you know. And it's important that we learn that, that they don't end well, while it is equally important that they do end well for a time in our lives. Yeah? That's why we tell fairy tales with happy ends. And then we shift the emphasis, you know, over the years. Suddenly the happy ends come at a price, you know. Lessons are being paid for and things go wrong sometimes. And this is important that we learn that. So we learn to handle more and more of the true nature of experience. But initially we needed the safety, the stability, the reliability. And if our parents were on the ball, basically we got that. Obviously we have complaints, but um, on the whole, you know, parents across the board ca can do that sort of thing. They don't have to be particularly clever or beautiful or well-paid or, you know, human beings all over the globe have done that, have created stability and safety. The development of our brains is a, is a, a testimony to the social stability of our uh, clans and troops and uh, tribes. You know. Still today, if you look at adolescent delinquency and studies on this, the, the one def definitive factor for adolescent delinquency is, is the presence of a male adult. Yeah. That is the one defining factor that minimizes uh, adolescent delinquency. It doesn't even ask for this male adult to be highly involved in the upbringing or be a pedagogical masterpiece. The simple presence of, you know, an, a male alpha animal in there is decreasing the likelihood of um, delinquency in particularly young males. Yeah. It's amazing. This is very much evolutionary psychology. And why? Because the simple presence, not even its particular skills, in teaching or in training or in relating, the simple presence stabilizes a situation. At least that's what it does in most cases. Often yeah, there's plenty of examples that where it doesn't do that. Yeah, I'm sure you have some ideas about this. But it does, if you look across the board, statistically pan out that the simple presence of adult males has a, a minimizing impact on uh, the likelihood of delinquency, which is amazing. We experience continuity and we would, and our perceptual apparatus is feeding into that. So the way our senses work is by picking up a lot of sensory details and then by serializing sensory uh, impressions into perceptions. Yeah. To simplify that is, you know, while our sensory perceptions are kind of like picture frames, 
we impose these pictures frames on an essentially fluid type of sensory experience. So while the world flows in our senses, it doesn't stand still. The frames in which we capture this flowing world of our sensory uh, reality, the frames are still. Yeah? They may be highly accurate for that moment, but then we, we jump from the immediate sensory uh, level, we jump on an abstract level where we have picture frames, perceptual picture frames. And these picture frames, they can be talked about, they can be remembered, they can be moved around, they can be associated with, they can be spoken of. But they are slightly more abstract than the movable uh, sensory world on the knee. So the mobility we gain, the fact that we can think about these things and talk about these things, remember them, plan them, exchange them, associate them, comes at the price of immediacy. It comes at the price of that what here moves very slowly or very uh, imperceptibly in the level of sensory world and the level of perceptualized or perceived th thought and image has become stabilized. Yeah? So there's a falsification taking place and that falsification makes that our world gains a kind of thinginess, what philosophers call reification. So I believe I'm actually living in a world where things are more solid, have more thinginess than it is the case. Yeah. So I have concepts. I know how Peter looks. Uh, and if what comes up in my visual field looks enough like my memory of Peter, I think this is Peter. He just looks tired or unshaven today. Yeah. So I keep relating to the world in terms of my stabilized percepts which may have been more or less accurate at one point, but over time <laughs> become obsolete. Yeah? And they pretend to be more stable than, they, than the world I live in actually is. Yeah? We, we fix that by continual updates. Yeah? We patch that by continual attentional focus on things, and then we update our image of Peter. This is how he looks today. It yeah? doesn't matter how he looked yesterday or the day before yesterday, but now this is how he looks. Yeah. So I have a new perception, which for the time being is more accurate than my old one. Tomorrow, my new one will also be old. Yeah. So we live continually in such a world um, in which reification takes place. It takes place through the senses, the fact that we, we're focused on things. You come in here and you see people, you don't see the space between people. Yeah. We focus on the thoughts in our mind, not the gap between our thoughts. There's lots of silence in our mind, yeah? but we tend to be obsessed with the bits in between the silence. When we listen to the sound, we, we listen to the sounds out there. We don't listen to the space between these sounds. So there's something in our senses that keeps focusing on objects, on things, rather than on background, on space. So reification takes place on the level of perception. Reification takes particularly place on the level of language. As soon as I open my mouth, you know, I start using personal pronouns. I refer to you and I refer to myself. It seems uh, to strengthen my belief in that there's something called me and there's something called you. And these two things are different. I start relating to my thoughts in ways that... Uh, have to do with ownership. There's this thought popping up and then something says, oh, 
thought, look at that. And then, oh, it, it's here, it pops up for me, yeah. Look at that, it's my thought, because I'm here, yeah. Suddenly I'm here, yeah. Suddenly I am here because there is something to be thought of. There must be somebody who has it, who makes this experience. And that's me, yeah. And then some kind of magic, some sleight of hand happens, yeah. My thought, and then, whoop, I become the one who has this thought, yeah. I suddenly transform into the, the protagonist of my thinking. Before it was the thought that gave rise to the me that had the thought, and now suddenly this, the game has changed. There is a me that has thoughts. Yeah? Thought goes, me stays behind. Yeah? <laughs> and then I go on, you know, this is a clever thought. So <clears throat> I suddenly take the quality of the thought. I become a clever self, yeah? at least as long as I have clever thoughts. And then, you know, Maybe you have a more clever thought and then I have a problem because you have a clever self and this clever self and they get into a tussle. Or I have a stupid thought and then I become a stupid self. So you realize the reification of my experience and the tendency to appropriate my experience, to make a statement about me on the basis of what I experience puts us at great risk. You know? Because I can't really control my thoughts. I don't know what you can, but I can't. Um, so if I have stupid thoughts I, and I identify with them, I turn into a stupid self. If I have angry thoughts, I turn into an angry self. Um, if I have lonely thoughts, I turn into a lonely self. And that puts me at considerable risk. You know? Just a, a process I cannot control produces suddenly selves I'm settled with. So this particular pattern is called, in Buddhist teaching, identification. This is what I'd like to spend the rest of my talk on. It's called upadana. It's what we translate as clinging, grasping, identification, attachment. It's a primary activity that creates basically a me and the world and splits these two things. It is by the activity of upadana I end up in a world I can only lose. Yeah. So if we want to say uh, we, we engage in selfing because it makes us safe and the way we do that is uh, primarily by this act of identification, that is what we do when it is mental, yeah, when it's about thoughts, or when it's emotional, then I would call it grasping or attaching. I would like to hold on to something. The most natural of gestures, if it feels good, I would like it to continue. I would like to have more of it. I would like it to come back. Yeah? A very natural gesture. Very profound, very deep-seated. You know, long before you have human beings string a couple of amino acids together and the thing will demonstrate uh, movement, movement. If it feels nice and nourishing, it'll move towards. Yeah? If it feels toxic and bad, it will move away. Yeah? It use uses its little flagellar, and it'll go to Good, that's a good soup, and a bad soup, I go away. A very old, old principle, long before creatures do complicated things like oxygen breathing or sexuality, just a few amino acids, and you have this principle. And our mind is exactly the same. If it feels good, I would like to have it, keep it, prolong it, repeat it. If it feels bad, I would like it to stop, I would like it to go away, I would like it to never happen again. So these are very, very 
fundamental principles of, let's call it irritability or something. Yeah? And that our mind operates constantly on that thing. Usually, the basis on which it operates is Vedana. That's why these things are so important, because they trigger off a whole process. Um, and we can't help that this is the natural inclination. It's very difficult to experience something pleasant without wanting more of it. Now, there is no law that says, because it's present, I need to be greedy for it. Or because it's unpleasant, I need to have aversion for it. However, while there is no law that stipulates this, there's a high likelihood that if I experience something pleasant, I would like repetition. Yeah? The untrained and the unawakened mind clearly seeks to prolong the pleasantness of something agreeable and seeks to cut short the unpleasantness of something disagreeable. So we seek duration. Upadana is an attempt to do that. And it's quite subtle. Um, it uh, happens in four big domains. So the first of these domains is called Kamupadana. That means this domain of sensuality. It basically uh, has to do with seeking. It has to do with um, experience and it has to do with addiction. Yeah? These are the sort of key words you find in it. Kamupadana is everything that deals with our six senses. Any uh, experience we can have and we like to repeat. We feel the wish to discontinue. Uh, and these are the things that make us good feelings. Yeah? We find them nourishing, we find them pleasant, we find them gratifying, we find them satisfactory. Um, yeah. These are not moral statements. This is important. This is a natural inclination. So we seek identification with that which is pleasant to us and gives us good feelings, gives us satisfaction, gives us gratification, gives us pleasure, gives us lust, gives us security, gives us comfort, gives us safety. Very clear stuff. Most of what we do in our lives is about Kamupadana. Yeah. Our societies applaud us. Yeah. Our, the affluence of our societies is a direct outcome of socially engineered Kamupadana, which is congratulated by the forces that make ideology in our societies. Our societies only start criticizing that if it goes beyond a certain measure, if it gets, it gets exploitative or it becomes addictive or at least some types of addiction. Work is not so poo-pooed uh, as alcohol is, for example. But, you know, beyond a certain measure of gratification, uh, we start to frown upon this as a society. Now, spiritual paths have always suspected that in our attitude to sensuality, uh, some things are going on which need to be looked at. You know? Spiritual traditions across the board feel that both the repression of sensuality and the permissiveness in the domain of sensuality are dangerous. So our first and foremost form of identifying with something or holding on to something, splitting the world into me and world, uh, is Kamupadana. A second one uh, is not about seeking, it is about... Um, knowing the right thing. It's called silavatu padana. It's the attachment and grasping uh, to doing the right activity, knowing the right method, knowing the right obser observance, knowing the right trick. Yeah. It's about competence. 
So we invest a lot into doing the right type of diet, into doing the right type of meditation, into sending our kids to the right type of school. Yeah? We believe our superiority, our competence and our safety comes from applying a particular technique or a particular ritual or a particular approach or method or observance and that gives us competence. Now most of the time some of this is true, you know, we really attach to things that work. We don't attach to things that don't work. But if you have ha followed a diet that really gave you good results, then obviously you would like to share that. So you share it with your partners and your friends and your family, um, and then they may do it as well. Now if you really attach, you think, actually, everybody should do this. Yeah? Yeah, it's not just good for me, it's actually good for everybody. They don't know it, so I need to tell them. Yeah? If you go a little bit more extreme, you think, well, actually, this is the only thing that's really good. Yeah. People don't know it, but actually that's what they all need to do. We basically need to force them. <laughs> yeah. You can't really do anything good unless you're willing to do this. Yeah. So there's no way that you can do proper policies unless you follow my diet. There's no way you can fly to the moon unless you follow my diet. There's no way that meditation is going to help you unless you follow my diet. So, you know, these are stages of degrees of attachment, but we tend to attach in the second domain of sila and vata, of observances, method and technique, we tend to attach to the stuff that was good for us. Yeah. So notice the goodness of this is not in question. The attachment and the goodness are two totally different things. Yeah. You can attach to things that are purposeless and that are uh, bad, or you can attach to things that are perfectly healthy and good. Both are attachments. Um, Buddhist scriptures are a bit polemic about this. They tend to think that the observances and methods are always the methods and observances of the people who are not Buddhists. Yeah? Um, the truth is, you know, Buddhists quite happily engage in righteousness about doing the right thing. So we have quite strange opinions. So. We think, well, he's a good teacher, actually, po quite possibly enlightened, but, you know, but he's never been to Asia, so he can't really be any worth. Or, or you know, he's a very nice guy, but he just doesn't meditate enough. Uh, or, you know, he doesn't, you know, quite possibly really skilled in his meditation practice, but he's never read a sutta, so he really can't take him serious. Yeah? So we, we have a lot of views on degrees of performance or application or things we think are of value. And we can be quite unjust. You know? People can pr produce f fabulous uh, qualities and yet we judge them by something which we deem to be important and completely disregard what they actually offer. Yeah. We write them off. Often people who are focused on, say, a particular practice or take a particular approach quite serious, tend to get more and more opinionated in this. Yeah. Then the third dimension of attachment is um, uh, called ditti, dittupadana. That is a big one. We derive a sense of superiority from knowing the right thing. Yeah. We have 
an opinion, we have an ideology, we have a view, um, we have um, something that gives us a feeling we, we are in the know. Yeah? We're one up on the other folks. We have a particular insight or we have the big picture and my attachment to this big picture is what gives me safety, what gives me competence, what makes me uh, more likely to succeed and less likely to suffer. Yeah. So there uh, you can see a lot, you know, ideologies abound in our days. Uh, you, you, can, you can believe all kinds of things and uh, we have people who are going to quite, uh, quite some uh, intensity per defending their ideologies. And to the degree we uh, attach with an ideology, to the degree we identify with a view or an opinion, we are very prone to suffer. Somebody disagrees with my view, it doesn't feel like he disagrees with my own view, he, dis he feels like he disagrees with me. Yeah? Turns out my view is completely false and wrong. Yeah? So it's not that my view is false and wrong, I suddenly become wrong, I become refuted, not my view. Yeah? So views are strange. Some of these views we have arrived at through reflection and pondering. Most of our views are, we have probably not arrived at through reflection and pondering. Most of our views are probably unconscious. Most of our views we have subliminally taken on board uh, from mother's milk to taking up our subcultures, take on things and tacit assumptions which we have never questioned. Most of the views that make us suffer are views that we have been too lazy to inspect. We have not actually acknowledged that we have acquired a view. No. Many of our views are challenged when we go somewhere else. No. That's why traveling is such a big experience. You go somewhere else and suddenly you find um, people have very different ideas how toilets work. Yeah? <laughs> or how much privacy is needed for a toilet. Yeah? Or so, um, the very strange ideas, which, you know, in some cultures it's quite okay that your toilet is only that high and you talk with each other. Yeah? When you s and in some cultures, where I come from, this is not okay. Yeah? <laughs> yeah? And you've never thought that you were particular in your way of relating to toilets and to the amount of privacy. You just thought this was normal, this was shared, this was a kind of universal human sort of trait. And then you find out, no. This is not the case. And you find yourself sitting in one of those toilets and what comes up is your investment in a particular view of how much privacy you need to follow your digestive functions in this. Yeah? And you find this preoccupies your mind. You, know? you, you feel <laughs> encroached upon or you, you, you do not wish to participate in a collective conversation. <laughs> yeah? Yeah? <laughs> so... And you would nev never given a thought to this unless you had actually gone to a place where people do with the same unquestionable normalcy something completely different than what you thought or what you have been trained in as being normal. Yeah? So many of our views are kind of like reefs underneath the surface of the water. We only notice they're there when we hit them. Yeah? And then generally we respond with shock or indignation you know isn't that forbidden you know can't somebody do something about this <laughs> yeah so we we can be quite irrational when our views are not uh, supported we feel quite challenged 
we can get quite nervous. I mean, who hasn't been there? When something turns, uh, you have just been spouting with great conviction, turns out to be completely false and bogus, and is publicly uh, open, and everybody sees that you have just been supporting something that is absolutely has no hand and foot. And the degree to which you try to hope nobody notices, or to degree to try to argue your way out, or kind of claim extenuating circumstances or speak of misunderstandings is exactly the degree of your attachment to this view and your self, your mana, remember Christina last night, your investment in a sort of conceit of I am. And I am as somebody who has identified with this view. And now this view comes under scrutiny and turns out to be bogus. Basically, it seems as if I am bogus, suddenly, the holder of this view. So this is a very classic example of Dityupadana. The last one is actually a special form of this Dityupadana. It's, it's, uh, it's something of a, uh, an ideologized version of Sakaya Ditti, an ideologized version of the view, I am this, I am this body or I am here, I exist. It's called Atavada Upadana. It's the... Uh, grasping or the identification with the explicit ideology of a self. Yeah. So, this is myself, so keep out of it, and this is yourself, and the boundary is here, yeah, and I want you to respect my boundary, and then um, we can talk. If you don't respect my boundary, we don't talk. Yeah. And I'm quite independent of yourself, and yourself's supposed to be independent of this self as well. And if you challenge this in any way, I'm going away, or I get angry, or I become threatening, or something like that. So Atavada Upadana is the explicit ideology of a, a teaching that presupposes uh, a self that endures in time, that is the agent of life, and that <coughs> is the experiencer that is solid, that is owned, and that continues through time. Um, you know, this this kind of, we engage a lot in this, just when I fish out my passport, it says my name in there and I, this is me, you know. Actually, there's a monk in there when I look in my passport, yeah, <laughs> this is not me. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's a younger monk, I've got a few more wrinkles now, <laughs> you know. So the insistence with which I claim identity with, say, an earlier version of me. I don't deny that I have something to do with the guy in the passport, but uh, to claim identity with that guy seems ridiculous. Yeah? We say, oh, this is Aunt Emily and me, you know, I'm three years old there. I'm no, I'm not three years old. I've lost my milk teeth. Yeah? I'm about 70 kilos more than I was then. <laughs> yeah? This is quite objectively a joke if I claim identity with that being there who is small and little and constituted of very different setup than, uh, than this, this being here is. So the notion of a self as a, as a supported and as a fortified ideology is a particular form of a ditti upadana. All these forms of upadana converge on a statement basically that makes a self out of my experience. Now, 
Are there ways I can free myself from this? That is a challenge. Buddhist teachings has a few things to say on this. Unfortunately, one of the things it says, it doesn't say loud enough. There is a beautiful reflection that uh, occurs a couple of times in the teachings and it hasn't somehow made it into the famous chart lists of Buddhist um, qualities. Uh, but I'd like to explain some of this tonight. The Buddha says we let go on the basis of a particular sober an honest reflection, namely that we let go if we acknowledge that the things we hold on to are more painful than when we don't hold on to. We don't let go because of reason, we don't let go because of uh, decency, we don't let go because our teachers tell us, we don't let go because it's common sense, we do let go because we have understood that holding on to something is more painful than not holding on to. That is the only reason why we let go. Very sober, very pragmatic. Huh? No amount of intimidation, browbeating, moralizing, pontificating can make us let go. We can pretend. Yeah? We can kind of say, okay, I don't take it. Yeah? But we don't really let go. If it, if it doesn't look, I'm going to take it anyway. Yeah? Or I'm going to fantasize about it. That's also not letting go. You know? I haven't taken it, but you know, it's going to continue in my fantasies. That also is a form of attachment. So, truly, the heart only let go, lets go if it has understood that A, it is pointless in holding on, and B, if I try to hold on, it's going to settle me with more pain and more uh, uh, frustration and more disappointments and more loss than when I don't hold on, when I don't identify with, when I don't attach to. I still may appreciate, I still may uh, value but I am not going to identify with it. I'm not going to hold on at all cost. Now, what are these four considerations? The first one, they come in pairs. The first one is the consideration that something arises, that it appears. In other words, that it appears and how it appears. Yeah. The consideration, what is object of my attachment or what invites my attachments or my identification in fact is something that is arising. That's the first term, samudaya. You know it from the second noble truth, the truth of the arising of dukkha, samudaya. Uh, that's the same term. The second consideration, its pair, so to say, its twin, is the fact that it disappears. The Pali word is a little less common, it's atangama, means the going down something. So, so I contemplate that whatever is object of my attachment or invites, beckons that I identify with it is actually something that is arising and disappearing. Yeah. It's not there in its suchness and remaining unimmutable. Yeah. I have already established, hey, it arises and it disappears. Yeah. If I want to join, I risk that it disappears. Yeah. If I have invested it not being there, it may arise again. So, in other words, there is a process nature there. If I see that it arises and it disappears, I may establish reasons why it arises and disappears. I may try to correlate it with context. context. Yeah. Some things arise in a certain context and disappear in a certain context. and uh, I know it will not going to last. 
If it demonstrates arising and cessation or disappearance, I know it's not going to last. It's one of these things that are going to betray me sooner or later, however good they are. The next ones uh, are less obvious. The next consideration asks, what is the gratification of this particular experience? Yeah. What is the kick of it? What is its reward? What do I get out of this? Yeah. That's an interesting question. Often, if we feel attached to something, we, we wish to get rid of the attachments without actually acknowledging that we get something out of it. Yeah. We're happy to say, uh, what is the disadvantages? Oh, I would like to get rid of my anger. Yeah. But what is the advantage of my anger? If I don't acknowledge the degree of gratification I get from my anger, I may never let go of my anger because the, the gratification that comes with the anger is unacknowledged. Yeah. There are many good reasons for anger. One of them is power. Yeah. If I don't get what I want, and then I get angry, and then I get it. You know, anger is a good thing. It works. <laughs> it's, you know, it's frowned upon. <laughs> it doesn't feel good. People reproach me of it, <laughs> but hey, I get what I want. <laughs> you know, you don't you don't obey. I get angry. You do obey. I get what I want. Yeah. If I have not learned to feel power in any other way than becoming angry, I will probably not so easily let go of my anger. Yeah, because this is the way I get power. I feel energy. It's better than depression. Better be angry than depressed. So. Uh, if I have never learned to find energy or to find power or strength or conviction other in any other way, and I don't admit that I do get these things by getting angry, I'm unlikely to let go of my anger just because it's frowned upon or it's poo-pooed in Buddhist circles or uh, people stand back a little bit. You know? In other words, if I only speak of the disadvantages and never admit to myself the advantages I get of the thing, I'm unlikely to let go. Yeah. If I want to let go of it, I really need to learn to find power and conviction and energy in other ways. And when I have found other ways of getting at power and conviction and energy, then I don't rely on my anger anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. So. It's a very important that I do admit to myself as honestly as I can the advantage a certain pattern of behavior has, even though the mind says this is an unfortunate pattern of behavior. Self-judgment, attachment, anger, grieving, uh, gear, greed, yeah? all kinds of things. We, we all know that they're bad for us. But sometimes we don't admit what we actually garner. Yeah? We don't admit what we get out of things. And we wonder why it doesn't let go. Yeah. Now, it doesn't let go because the, uh, the gratification we get, the advantage we get, the kick we get out of things are not declared. Yeah. They're not above board. And as long as they're not above board, the good suggestion to let go just doesn't cut it. Yeah. So we need to acknowledge what we get out of a thing. Buddhist teaching calls this the asada, that which I enjoy. The, the gratification is probably the good word. And you can expect what the next one is. The next one is the consideration of the disadvantage of a thing, the danger. What Buddhist psychology calls adinava. Now, only if I'm holding up the arising, 
the disappearance, the gratification and the danger of a thing. And I come to the conclusion that the disadvantages are bigger than the advantages. Only then will I let go. It's just unreasonable to expect me to let go if, if this equation doesn't pan out in a way that I acknowledge the pain is bigger than the advantages. So, there are encouragements that we take up this consideration. If we find ourselves engaged in forms of attachments, in forms of upadana, in forms of grasping, that we soberly and repetitively take up these considerations. Does it arise? Does it cease? Does it deliver? Does it hurt? How much does it deliver? What does it deliver? How much does it hurt? In what way does it hurt? Often, when we find ourselves unwilling to let go of something, we need to find out what we gain from this thing. You know, and we, we may gain from sleepiness not having to bother with our aversion. Yeah? So we wonder why we're still sleepy. But in fact, the sleepiness is just a camouflage for our aversion. Or we may find solace in acting out greedy patterns, addictive patterns. Or we may uh, find that once we have acted out greedy patterns, we can then condemn ourselves in the tone of voice our parents or teachers or whoever has been a pedagogical monster in your life. Uh, uh, we can ad adopt their number and condemn ourselves in the same way and feel strangely good. You know? We feel in a, in a world which we don't like, but we have created order. We know who the baddies are, and I'm now condemning myself. So I'm the goody. Yeah? So we, you know, we do strange things. And sometimes we do painful things to avoid us being in touch with other painful things. And these considerations help. They help us look very clearly at uh, patterns of behavior that we cannot explain. And if we look more closely, we find reasons why we do things. We find secret uh, kickbacks. We find um, maybe even the comfort of I know where I belong. It's the lousiest place I can possibly have. You know, I'm a loser. I've, I don't deserve it. But at least I know where I belong. You know? And that's better than not knowing where I belong. It's unpleasant. It makes me feel a victim and a loser. But at least I'm living in a world where there is a certain order. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm at the bottom of the pile, but I know it's not a chaotic world. And I'm, I'm not uncertain where I am. And sometimes we are doing quite horrible forms of attachment. Yeah. That we attach to pleasant things makes quite a lot of sense, isn't it, in terms of psychology. But if you look, sometimes our attachments are to really dreadful things. You know, we attach to patterns and ways of thinking and relating to ourselves that make us perfectly miserable. Often because we are afraid that we lose a structure or we lose an order if we let go of that, po of that pattern. So the encouragement is obviously contemplate. If you can also contemplate the four forms of uh, upadana in terms of uh, kamupadana, uh, grasping and identifying with sensuality. Um, there are contemplations we can do there. We can contemplate, for example, the well-being and the pain of others when it comes to seeking gratification. Yeah. So if we find out that it hurts somebody, what we do, we may be, t we may be more willing to let go of what we seek 
we, if we contemplate um, how impermanent the gratification is we get out of things, yeah? Eat something sweet, five seconds on my tongue, yeah? 15 minutes in my stomach, five months on my hips, yeah? <laughs> okay. <coughs> you know, you kind of consider certain... Uh, that joy seems rather short for the amount of time you have to spend on your home trainer to get it, get rid of it. Yeah, so you start to establish such correlations, or you, as you get older, you kind of consider the amount of sensory gratification you have experienced, and still you want more. Yeah, and still you don't feel satiated. What makes you think that another one? will somehow hit the spot when the 500 before haven't hit the spot. Yeah? It's quite sobering, isn't it? We anticipated somehow something we know quite well, what it can deliver at its best, is going to deliver something substantially more than it has delivered so far. Yeah? That's kind of... It's just downright unreasonable, is it? So... You may consider things like voluntary simplicity or you may consider things like sense restraint as other strategies to actually become happy. Not just, you know, teeth gritting renunciations, say, well, yeah, I've got, got to let go of that one. But actually, I have tried this one and it hasn't really delivered. So why not try another approach as an experiment, as a working hypothesis? Maybe. Who knows? The mind gets still, and I find suddenly a degree of contentment I would have never expected to come to me without doing the things I usually do to feel content. In terms of strategies and diets, you and observances and methods, think uh, the amount of pain that has come into this world through people attaching to beliefs to people attaching to rights, to people attaching to uh, forms of you know, performances, rituals. Um, how much difference there is in human beings that different people are helped by different things. Just think of food. We can't agree what proper nutrition is on this planet. Yeah? Some people live of yogurt and dried apricots and other people you know, bury meat under rocks and let it rot there and come back six months and eat it and it, it seems to do the job, yeah? yeah? Other people, you know, have all kinds of elaborate diets and, you know, this is something so central to our life and we haven't agreed on what is good for everyone. Yeah? Human beings are really different, yeah? And your particular technique, your particular observance, your particular strategy, which you think is going to save the world or save humanity or make everybody enlightened, may not cut it. Yeah. Even though it may be good for you, and even though you believe it would be probably also good for a few others, you don't really know. So trying to foist what you think is good on other people or convert your families or your church or your, you know, your quarter or your gated community or whatever, yeah, uh, <laughs> to your particular brand of performance or your ritual or so, is probably not the best thing. If you want to be subversive, you want to be Buddhist about it, you know, you do soft sell, you smile, you let the mask, 
you know you don't you don't peddle you let them come and find out you make them curious you're patient you're kind that's really subversive <laughs> there's a Tibetan teacher Jimmy Rickson Rinpoche was a very fine man with many Western disciples and he was particularly aware of the certain greed in certain Western disciples for wisdom teachings and he introduced a secret mantra especially for Western disciples particularly dovetailed to the Western psyche, you know, gifted, ambitious, and so forth. And obviously his Western disciples very keen, and he said, the mantra was as follows. Please, please, sorry, sorry, thank you, thank you. <laughs> huh? So, I think there's something true in this. You know? I think this man has understood something about us. Something what we lack something uh, what we're occasionally deficient of in our ambition, in our uh, wish to take the fast track, uh, and in our unwillingness to acknowledge where we nourish ourselves from. In terms of ditti, attachment to views, it is probably necessary to consider how much drama has come into this world, how much killing and bloodshed has been going on in the name of the right understanding, in the right view, in the right belief, in the right ideology. Both the Indian and the Near Eastern history are, uh, have telling examples. King Ashoka, or Emperor Ashoka, has, before he became a Buddhist and supported Buddhist teachings across India and has uh, made one of the first successful propaganda acts by p putting up pillars uh, across his empire and declaring Buddhist principles and becoming a vegetarian. Uh, before he has done that, he's butchered a few thousand Kalingas on the uh, far uh, western side of his, eastern side of his country. And um, because they were of views that he didn't agree with and the Bible speaks of, forgot, 30 or 40,000 people who couldn't pronounce the term shibolet in the right way and had to be done in just for that reason. So, you know, the history of religion is full of bloodshed. Even good religions have blood at their hands. Even Buddhists who are hard to, uh, Buddhist teachings are hard to uh, use to justify bloodshed. Even Buddhists have blood at their hands. So it's probably a sobering contemplation that my attachment to the rightness of a particular view um, can lead to a lot of rigidity, pain, hardness, callousness, cruel, cruelty. And that in the name of the rightness of views, much of that has happened throughout history. The proneness of identifying with you for my own suffering, I think, is a contemplation to, to have. Yeah, that I am very prone to the amount of, I agree, I, I identify with a particular view that I will suffer when this view is coming under question or not being taken up or being even uh, disproved, uh, makes me a lot of, gives me a lot of suffering. So, such contemplations help and temper, temper, uh, sorry, temper our our willingness to attach. Let me end this. Consider 
your own patterns of selfing may have good reason. You know, you may derive comfort, you may derive solace, you may derive security from this. And before you can let go, you will need to find other ways to either reconcile with insecurity, to find other forms of comfort, to find solace somewhere else. Sometimes if we don't let go, it is because we don't see some of the advantages this has. And we need to investigate the advantages more. Even though these advantages may be short-lived and ultimately not working, we still need to understand more deeply how we operate. I'd like to encourage you, you know, your intelligence and your stillness and all the stuff you have learned about yourself through this retreat and other retreats and the things you bring along. We're not stupid, you know, and we're quite willing to learn. I've seen many of you learning in these groups we have had over the days, people really allowing this teaching to arrive and to make use of this and learning. So don't underestimate intelligence and be willing to investigate. Be willing to test the waters with that tools you are given and tools you arrive at through practice to investigate not just the falsity of things but also where there may be benefit, where there may be gratification, where there may be safety, where there may be something that you use to comfort yourself in some way. If you don't let go, some of this will happen. Generally, we are invested. If we don't let go, we're invested. And it's legitimate to investigate that. Good. Let me end. Thank you for your attention.